Hi, I'm Brian Levy. I'm a partner at Manchester Living and the host of the Manchester Living podcast. The purpose of the podcast is to help people navigate the complex maze of elder care. There's a lexicon of elder care terms on the website at manchesterlivingpodcast.com. I've added a few terms that we're going to be using today um, to the lexicon, um, including ACP, which stands for Advanced Care Planning, EOL, End of Life, and ICU, Intensive Care Unit. Uh, today's new and noteworthy is an intro to end of life programs. It can be difficult to talk about death or dying, what our end of life care looks like and how we might be cared for as we age or become seriously ill. You might think it isn't necessary because you're too healthy or too young. Or you might not understand what's involved in palliative and end-of-life care and what steps you need to take to make a future plan. You might not know how to start the conversation or want to upset your loved ones by talking about it. But as hard as it might be to start the conversation, it's an important one to have. Talking about your wishes early empowers you to make plans that are in line with the things that you value most. Palliative care is commonly mistaken as being the medical care you receive only when death is imminent, but it's much more than that. Palliative care is about improving the quality of life when facing a life-limiting illness. It focuses on your care needs and aims to prevent and relieve suffering by treating not only the physical, but also the emotional, social and spiritual symptoms for you and your family. End-of-life care is about the palliative care services that you and your family receive when you're facing the end of your life. It often involves many health professionals bringing together a range of skills to support your illness and your family. Wherever possible, end-of-life care is provided where you and your family want, at home, in hospital, in a hospice or a residential aged care facility. Palliative care is available to anyone with a life-limiting illness and can be accessed through referral from your GP, medical specialist or other health provider. So how do you talk about this important issue? Some of us will find discussing palliative care easier than others. There are many factors at play. Your mindset, values, beliefs, culture, health, family relationships and so on. It's important to remember there's no right or wrong way to talk to your loved ones. And conversations like this are likely to happen over time. The Department of Health website has useful resources that may help. The next important step after having conversations with your family and healthcare professionals is to create a plan that documents your wishes. This is known as an advanced care plan or an advanced care directive in some states which is the process of planning your medical care in advance, regardless of your age or health. It's important to start talking early about what matters to you, to maintain as much control as possible over your end-of-life care choices. Have the conversation with your loved ones, the way it works best for you. Visit www.health.gov.au forward slash palliative care.
Hope that was helpful as we jump right in. Today we're discussing what some consider morbid or an uncomfortable subject called end-of-life planning. There are various programs in place such as the Conversation Project, Wise Care, and other advanced care planning toolkits. Why would one want to be a part of such a program, especially if they are healthy? Reduce expensive unwanted healthcare intervention at end of life. Reduce suffering of patient and family. Reduce family decision-making burdens and reduce risk of dying alone. End of life objectives include recognize patient preferences when facing serious life-limiting illness, get affairs in order, including legal and financial, and organ donor decisions. Real desires at end of life include, but are not limited to, freedom of pain, peace with God, mental awareness, treatment choices, finances in order, make you feel like your life was meaningful, resolve any conflicts you may have, and do you want to die at home? The great doctor here said, failing to do advanced care planning is like failing to wear a seatbelt. You don't need it until you crash and then it's too late. I'm excited to have my guest today, Dr. Robert Fine. Dr. Fine is the clinical director of ethics and palliative care at Baylor Scott and White. Thank you very much for being here today. Happy to be here. Thank Let's you. jump in. Sure. Um, this is somewhat of a depressing, sad, morbid conversation, but we still should all have it. And I'm curious, what is, let's just, let's just start with, what is supportive and palliative care and how did you get into this silo of medicine? So in terms of what it is, Brian, uh, support. So it's support in the face of serious illness and palliation means to cloak pain and other symptoms. So it's support and symptom management for patients with serious illness. And then you say, well, what's a serious illness? Serious illness is one where the physician would say, you know, I hope my patient does very well, but I wouldn't be surprised if they died in the next one or two years. That's what we mean by a serious illness. So that yes, clear? That, you want yeah, to, no, no, no. That answered okay, that question. That, so, okay. so lay lay out who who is a candidate, who's eligible, and also how is it paid for? So again, who's eligible is anybody with a serious illness. Mm -hmm. It could be cancer, could be any organ failure, heart failure, lung failure, liver failure, kidney failure. It could be uh, dementing diseases, a kind of a brain failure, Parkinson's disease. It can come earlier, but in general, it is for this group of patients that we say we wouldn't be surprised if they died in the next couple of years. And those patients need comfort for their symptom burden. And their symptoms are not only physical, but they can be emotional. So being told that you have cancer that the doctor's gonna treat but not cure, that's scary. Treat but not cure. Yeah. That's important. Um, it can be, the symptom burden can be a social symptom burden, the distress in my family. How are my children dealing with my serious illness? Um, it can be a spiritual burden. How, what does this mean about me and God if, if one believes in a God? And not, not all Americans do. So that's another whole issue. How, how does one face the potential end of one's life if one doesn't have uh, spirituality through organized religion? There are other ways to have spirituality. So comfort, care, and planning for patients and families facing a serious illness, that's what supportive and palliative care are all about. And notice I said for patients and families. Mm -hmm. So if a patient's really sick, now things are getting really dicey. Often uh, supportive palliative care teams are spending a good deal of time supporting that family. How do we support the children? So if it's an 80-year-old, we're talking about adult children. Right. What about grandchildren? 
What about great-grandchildren? What does that support look like when you say support? Are there counselors or are there social workers? So supportive palliative care teams in hospitals tend to be multidisciplinary. In, in Baylor, Scott & White, our core team consists of a physician, an advanced practice professional, that could be a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, mm -hmm. a social worker, a chaplain, and a child life specialist, somebody who knows how to help adults talk to children when the adult is seriously ill and helps children process the news they're hearing. Um, a lot of what we do is we listen. We just listen, and by listening, we take in all the information from the patient, from the spouse of the patient, from all the family members, and we try to help the primary treatment team. So if it's cancer, the primary treatment team is the oncologist. Right. They are the captain of the ship. If the disease is advanced heart failure, the primary treatment team is cardiology, and the cardiologist is the captain of the ship. But we work with that captain of the ship to help, again, provide the comfort that's necessary, to provide the care planning that's necessary to help the patient. I think the care planning is really something that you've wanted to talk about, which is this notion of advanced care planning. Sure. So let's let's dig deeper into sure. that. advanced care planning. And one of the re one of the places that I've met you was when you were um, doing the program called the Conversation Project, which mm -hmm. I've done now twice. I guess it's a seminar, a program, etc. Sure. Um, that really digs digs really deep into end of life planning mm -hmm. and what is that like, all the way down to where do you want to die? If you want to die at home, do you want to die in the bedroom, the living room? Do you want your glasses on? Do what shirt do you want to wear? Do you want the window open? Do you want the window closed? Things that we typically don't think about in our day-to-day -day activities. But those are important things to articulate to your family and loved ones. Walk me through that process as you work in end-of-life care programs. Well, I think the I think the most important thing to to walk through is to for the for the physician for the treatment team because we, we go to our physicians to get well. Mm -hmm. We don't go to physicians to die. Death is going to happen, but that's generally not why we go right. to the physician. It's generally not why we go to the hospital. We're in sick, we're in a crisis, we're going there hoping to get well, but we die. And so it's very important for the physician team, the medical team, to understand not just what's the matter with the patient, right? What, what disease they have, and what stage is that disease, but what matters to the patient. My journey, you asked me earlier, how did I wind up in this kind of work? And it really started shortly after finishing my residency in internal medicine. So I trained as an internist. And as, in that kind of training, almost all of it is in the hospital. And a lot of it is in the ICU. And you save a lot of lives and you lose some lives. And it was very sad when I would lose a life. And I thought, my, my job in life is to save life. Shortly after finishing my residency, I started working in a nursing home, covering for an older physician who had a heart attack. He was my mentor. He said, I'm sick. I can't go to the nursing home. Will you go for me? And I said, I'd be honored. I go to the nursing home. I start making rounds with the chief nurse looking at the sicker patients. And I come across a patient whose life I had saved. And this patient said to me, why did you do this to me? You should have let me die. And honestly, I was initially insulted. I can remember, I still remember it today. I was from you jerk, <laughs> you're alive. But I listened. And this gentleman's life was one of misery. 
And he said, you should have let me die. And I began really thinking about that. And as I made the rounds through the nursing home more and more, and saw more and more patients who would say, this life, they, they, sometimes it would be a joke. Well, the golden years aren't so golden. But sometimes it would be a direct accusation. You doctors shouldn't treat us this way. We treat our dogs better at the end of life, right? And getting told this when you were a young doctor, fresh out of training, that was hard. Pretty impactful. But it was important. And it, it was the beginning of a, of a journey for me where I'd say almost everything I know about serious illness care, not, not, the, not the technical part, not what drug to give, um, I know about how to get morphine from textbooks and lectures and, and that sort of stuff. But what I really know about caring for seriously ill patients and their families, I learned from seriously ill patients and their families. Certainly in my era, there was no training in palliative medicine. The concept, frankly, hadn't really been described. Um, and I learned from patients and their families. How did that interaction change the way you interacted with patients moving forward? Well, again, I learned to listen better. But I and, I, and, I learned, and I learned to ask, what matters to you? What's important to you? All right, you have this serious heart disease. Um, we can contact a surgeon. They can crack your chest open. They can go in there and they can try to fix this. Um, what do you think about that? And they might say to me, well, um, will I be able to ride my horse again or go hunting again or whatever was important to them or go dancing with my wife again? And then I'd have to talk to the cardiologist and say, well, if we do all this, what's their functional status going to be? And sometimes the answer would be, well, they'll certainly be alive, but they won't be able to return to the life they had before to what matters to them. Right. And then I would take that back to the patient and they'd say, I don't think I want that surgery. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what I mean, the choices. Sure. It's, it's finding out what's important. When you started this show off, you, you kind of gave a list of things that, that patients consider important at the end of life. Right. And I remember when that study came out and I thought, well, I do a lot of end-of-life care. I'll know the answer to that. And so I, I, I saw the title. Mm -hmm. I hid the, the answers. And I said, I bet what's most important to patients at the end of life is they want to die at home. And I revealed the first answer. It said, peace with God. And I said, okay, the number two is patients want to die, die at home. home. Yeah. And I revealed the answer. And I think it was have my affairs in order. And I began to realize that even though I thought I knew a lot about end-of-life care, right. I knew about it from a physician's perspective. I didn't know about it yet enough from the patient's perspective. And so when you go back and look at that list, that list that you read comes from a study of patients who were now so sick that they were enrolled in hospice, which typically means you're in the last weeks, maybe month or two of life. And those were all factors that more than 80% of dying patients said, this is really important to me. And roughly 40 to 60% of physicians understood it was important to their patients. Physicians didn't think being at peace with God was very important at all. But it's patients very important did, to the patient. Clearly. Right? Interesting. Okay. Um, what's the difference between a living will, out of hospital or do not resuscitate, and medical power of attorney? 
So a living will is the most important type of advanced directive you can have. So an advanced directive, these are instructions you prepare in advance while of sound mind to try to help your family. That's the most important person you're helping. And secondarily, your doctor know what your wishes are. And it's a legal document. It's a legal document. And, and here's the reality. If we get really, really sick as we approach the end of our life, about 80% of us as we approach the end of life will we'll lose the ability to communicate effectively what our wishes are. So do it now. So do it now. And the reason to put it in writing is to take that burden off your family. Don't just say, well, I talked to, mm -hmm. to my children about it. Because as somebody who talks to the children of dying elders, mm -hmm. different children hear different things. Only if it's written down can I say, well, here's what your mom or your dad wrote down. So the living will is most important, this legal document. And in Texas, you can use a living will to say, if I am either terminally or irreversibly ill, and we define those differently and I'm not gonna go into that now. If I'm either terminally or irreversibly ill, I would like my family and my doctors to A, pursue aggressive treatment, do everything medically appropriate, keep me going as long as you can, or B, stop those aggressive treatments. Don't put me on machines. Allow me to die as gently and peacefully as possible. In my experience, about 98% of living wills in Texas, the patient says, B, I want to just be kept comfortable because I'm terminally ill. Right. In other words, even if they keep me alive You're gonna a little bit longer, crack my ribs up yeah, I don't want that. That's not what matters to me. Right. I want to get, keep getting back to that. What matters to the patient? For most of us, and especially I think as a, as a geriatrician, when I used to practice, I practiced geriatrics, and most of my geriatric patients would say, you know, if you'd find, if you put me in a nursing home in a diaper with a, with a hole in my neck, I will come back from the grave and haunt you. Mm -hmm. That's not what most, it's certainly not what I want. And I'm a, I'm a 68 year old man. I feel blessed to have gotten to this stage. I'd love to be 98. I'd love to be 100 if I can live my life well. But not in a diaper with a hole in your neck. Not exactly. Makes sense? Um, right. Medical power of attorney. Yeah. So, Medical powers of attorney are a little different. In a medical power of attorney, you are appointing someone else to make all medical decisions for you. I'm not a fan. Um, typically, in fact, generally under the law, you're appointing one person. So if you've got three kids and you appoint one person, the other two kids are going to go, why did mom or dad pick you and not me? The other thing we know about medical powers of attorney is the person holding the medical power of attorney in about a third of cases does not make the decision the patient would have wanted. And we know that from kind of certain kind of studies that have been done. They tend to make decisions very, very late, and they've not been shown to reduce the non-beneficial, aggressive, unwanted treatment at the end of life. I would only do a medical power of attorney if I already had completed a living will. So have both in place. Well, I personally would just do a living will because, I, think, because I don't like the family disruption that I've seen medical powers of attorney cause. It is a very powerful legal document. So if you've got three children and you make one of them the medical power of attorney, that one child can overrule the other two children. I prefer and recommend family decisions. Talk it out. And I've told many medical powers of attorney that I've said, look, you have the legal authority to make this decision. What I would like is for all of you children to come together and make the decision together based on what you think your mother or father would tell you. If they could hover above the bed right now, what would they be telling you to do? So that's my preference. That's taking, my recommendation. You're taking all the guessing work out of it. Well, as much and as you can. Yes. As much as you can. Yeah. How does someone access supportive and palliative care programs? 
So typically, um, you know, I was just on the phone earlier today with the uh, palliative care leader at Parkland. I, I'm one of the older people in supportive palliative medicine in the state, so I know a lot of the, what I call them the youngsters. They're all, the, the next oldest person doing what I do generally is about 20 years younger than me. Okay. But we were talking about that. Most of us are hospital-based. Uh, our offices are at hospitals. We're seeing patients in the hospital or in clinics kind of immediately adjacent to the hospital. And generally we're available by referral, though in theory, nothing prevents a patient from picking up the phone, kind of going online. Mm -hmm. I work for Baylor Scott and White Health. Going online, you could look up Baylor Scott and White Health and it would say, and then you could type in supportive palliative care and find a physician and it would show you all the places where we have teams and one could get on the phone. The reality is, is there are not enough supportive palliative care physicians in the country. It's a relatively new field. It didn't have board certification until 2008. We turn out nationally about 350 graduating fellows a year for the entire country of what are we up to 330 million or something yeah. and we're an aging populace so there aren't as many of us we have to be careful about which patients we see and and, and when we when we see them right. um, we're not we're not remotely anywhere in the country optimally staffed to meet the need yet so referral is the best bet that one can pick up the phone and i presume one could do the same thing let's say at, at the clements hospital but there are sadly in Texas, in our state, um, at least a third of the hospitals have no associated palliative medicine program whatsoever. We talk about end of life, but we also need to talk about the serious illness before the end of life and how that is communicated with the family. Where do you go with that? So my, my observation about communication and serious illness Again, remember what a serious illness is. It's an advanced cancer or organ failure of some sort or neurodegenerative disease. And we're now at the point where we're saying, look, we, we've done two years of chemotherapy. We've done open heart surgery. We're using all the heart drugs we can. We wouldn't be surprised if our patient dies in the next couple of years. But that's a serious illness now. And my observation and many others in my field are our observation about communication in that setting. The routine communication that most doctors have, that the oncologist has or the cardiologist has, is the communication is infrequent. They don't do it enough. Mm -hmm. It's late. It, when it happens, it's happening sometimes days before death. And it's very limited. It might focus on something like your pain or your shortness of breath, but it doesn't focus on those other important dimensions of human suffering, the emotional, social, and spiritual suffering that accompanies physical suffering. So I say that serious illness communication in American medicine is ill, infrequent, late, and limited. And that's really not good for anybody. It's certainly not good for patients. It's not good for their families who may suspect something's going on, but nobody's talking about it. Right. We, we sometimes say, well, it's the elephant in the room that nobody addressed till the supportive palliative care team showed up. Sweep it under the rug yeah, and then just, all of it. Yeah. I, I'm just not going to pretend what I'm seeing is really happening to my mother so that the adult child doesn't talk to the their parent who is now in this last chapter of life. Right. The adult child doesn't tell their children, the grandchildren, what's happening to the parent. The doctor's not talking to them. And it's, it's all of that that leads to the high suffering that we see in American dying mm -hmm. and to the high cost of dying. Because we, if we don't talk, 
We're going to do all these things that I did as a young doctor that I was very proud of. We're going to get that patient in the nursing home. Yep. And then if the nursing home patient can speak, some of them are going to say, Dr. Fine, why did you save my life? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. Yeah. So suffering and mm -hmm. expense, mm -hmm. elaborate on that. You're suffering, you're in a diaper, you've got a hole in your throat, the expense, you're in the ICU, hooked up to all these machines. It's not how, it's not how you want well, it. It's not, how, it's not what most of us want. Mm -hmm. there, there are a few people who believe, I, I see this more in my patients of uh, a Christian background who will say to me, um, suffering is part of what God expects of me and it's part of my pathway to heaven. So there are some people that say suffering's just fine. I don't, I don't need that treated. But what's more common is there is all this physical suffering. There's this, and the physical suffering could be pain, shortness of breath, nausea. We'll see. Um, I've certainly seen patients with uh, advanced cancers, mm -hmm. and when I meet them, they have severe pain. In fact, I remember one in particular. He had pancreatic cancer. He'd been in and out of various cancer treatment programs around the state. He'd been to MD Anderson. He'd been to UT Southwestern. Now he was at Baylor University Medical Center. He had pain out the wazoo. The oncologist called, Bob, I need help with this gentleman's pain. I said, be right over. We went over, started him on a new pain management regimen. And I said, look, it's probably going to take a couple of days before we get this better. It's just going to take us a little while. I come in the next day, he's crying. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry your pain's not better. Remember I said it was probably going to take a couple of days to get it under control. And he says, I'm not crying because of that. He said, why are you crying? I'm crying because I didn't meet you six months ago. I've been in severe pain for six months. I've been to three different hospitals. I meet you, and in less than 24 hours, you've made my pain better. Mm -hmm. Okay? Again, some of the other pains that we see are not physical pain. They're emotional pain. They're, I don't know how to tell my grandchildren goodbye. And that hurts. And I'll tell them, well, I don't know either, but I have a team member who can talk to your grandchild and talk to you, the child life specialist. She will know how to help you tell your grandchild goodbye. Don't hide it from the grandchild because they're going to figure it out. They're going to know they're, at some point. They're going to know. Right. And they need to be told in an age-appropriate manner. A five-year-old needs information differently from a 15-year-old. That should be understandable to people. So key takeaway, communication is key. It right? gets back to communication. Wow, this is heavy stuff. Okay, on a lighter note, let's go on to the nugget portion of the program. Um, today's nugget, love in time of COVID, a couple age 98 and 91 quarantined together after being caught sneaking around. Take a look at the video. Call it a match made during the pandemic. Two Monmouth County residents in their 90s decided to quarantine together and they ended up finding love. CBS 2's Meg Baker has their story. 98-year-old <laughs> Bill Biega and 91 Iris Ivers met years ago while playing bridge. They reunited at Applewood Retirement Home when Bill moved there after his wife passed. We talked more and more. Iris with her gorgeous smile and and uh, behaving really like a younger woman. We got much fonder and fonder of each other. Then the virus hit. Locked us all down. We were not allowed to leave our apartments. You were 
were sneaking around, weren't we you? We were sneaking. He'd come to my apartment, I'd go to his. Then they got caught. Just like I was a college guy sneaking into the women's dorm. <laughs> they had to make a choice, stay apart or move in together. They chose to quarantine at Bill's. We love each other. It was a little bit of an adjustment. The couple says they learned a lot about each other quickly, including just how far to push each other. We have our, our wine with our dinner. We're, we're both okay. Bill has even gotten Iris to join his swimming routine. He does eight laps. That's what keeps me healthy. Love advice? Be a risk taker. Not a big risk taker, but I do do take them. I mean, mm -hmm. just moving in with Bill was a risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> Keep on being optimistic. Keep on striving to do your best. Take advantage of every opportunity. Annie says keep moving. An active social lifestyle has kept these two nanogenarians happy and healthy. In Freehold, New Jersey, Meg Baker, CBS 2 News. Iris added that Bill makes a great Bloody Mary. <laughs> Love wins. Cheers to both of you, Bill and Iris. Great story. Um, Dr. Fine, this is my favorite part of the program. This is an opportunity for viewers to get to know you personally. So if you don't mind, I'm going to power through some quick questions for sure. you. Answers one or two words real quick. Ever broken a bone? Uh, yeah, finger bone. How many kids do you have? <laughs> about that, three. Uh, Dallas native? Uh, no, Denver, Colorado. Welcome to town. Favorite sports to watch on TV? Oh, basketball. Okay. Favorite sport to play? Mm, probably when I was young and I could play, basketball. All right. <laughs> Ever slept in a tent? Oh, lots. All right. Favorite season? Fall. What point in life did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Probably college. Uh, ever changed a tire? Uh, yes. Where did you go to school? UT Austin and UT uh, Southwestern Medical School. Second language? Not really. Latin? No, 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 no. All right. L little Italian, a little Spanish, but not really. All right. And finally, can you write in cursive? Uh, barely. Nice. Dr. Fine, is, it, is it legible? You should is say. it legible? Right, exactly. Yeah. Thank you very much for being on the show today. I You're appreciate welcome, it. Brian. Normally, I give this opportunity for guests to tell um, uh, viewers how to reach you. I understand you are not seeing new patients at this no. time, so I just want to thank you very much for sharing time with us today. Sure. Um, may, may I just add, please? Again, supportive palliative care is is growing around the country. It's growing around the state. Our state, unfortunately, is behind. But certainly at UT Southwestern, at Parkland, at all Baylor Scott and White facilities, you can find access to good supportive palliative care. It just won't be with me. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for watching today. Um, Manchester Living Podcast can be found on Facebook at Manchester Living Podcast, on the World Wide Web at ManchesterLivingPodcast.com, and of course, iTunes. If there's anything I can ever do for you, please don't go to Google. Just call me directly. Thanks for watching today.